0: Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, back with another guest host appearance on Murder Minute. I want to tell you about our newly launched podcast called True Crime Reporter. It's an original co-production with podcast ad reps. Our first season features the backstory of the worst sadistic sexual serial killer in Texas history. Three decades ago, I broke the story about a corrupt parole system that was turning loose the meanest and most violent inmates in the Texas prison system. Now, I have dusted off my reporter's notebooks. My law enforcement sources have opened up their case files. We sat down to talk, and you can listen to our journey into darkness. But before you do, please be advised that we may discuss graphic details of crimes and you may hear some profanity. I know this audience is interested in stories about serial killers. You've heard of Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, just to name a few. But I'm going to tell you about a serial killer you probably have never heard of before. He killed countless young women up and down Interstate 35 through the heart of Texas for two years. He became the poster boy for a sweeping overhaul of the criminal justice system in Texas and a massive construction program for maximum security prisons. He is the only man in Texas history to receive three death sentences. I'm talking about Kenneth Allen McDuff because of McDuff life for capital murder in Texas now means the rest of your life and violent criminals serve much longer sentences. To hear the full 15 episode season, subscribe to True Crime Reporter on your favorite podcast app. And you can join our True Crime fandom by texting True Crime to 33777. That's two words, True Crime to 33777. And now, here's a preview of True Crime Reporter's first season called Free to Kill. A Texas jury sentenced 19-year-old Kenneth Allen McDuff to die in the electric chair for the broomstick murders of three Fort Worth teenagers in 1967. News coverage about the brutality of the murders was overshadowed by the University of Texas tower shootings in which a sniper's 90-minute killing spree left 14 people dead and 31 wounded. Thus, the horrors of Kenneth McDuff's deranged murders never received nationwide exposure. Nearly a quarter century later, an FBI agent investigating the disappearance of Melissa Northrup, a pregnant clerk missing from her night shift at a Waco convenience store, casually mentioned McDuff's name in passing to U.S. Marshal Parnell McNamara. Hearing McDuff's name triggered a wave of tragic memories and stopped Marshal McNamara dead in his tracks. McNamara's mind raced to understand what he had just heard. How could triple killer Kenneth McDuff get paroled off Texas death row? The FBI had found McDuff's car abandoned near the site of Northrop's abduction. McNamara immediately suspected that Kenneth McDuff was the prime suspect in the young mother's abduction.
1: I said, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes or Dick Tracy to solve this case. I said, "You." Like you have a dead girl in the alley and you got Jack the Ripper down at the end of the alley with a knife in his hand, that's a pretty good place to start.
0: So how does a deranged triple killer get off death row and become known as the worst sadistic sexual serial killer in Texas history? Macduff escaped his death with the executioner when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty with its Furman v. Georgia decision in 1972. Macduff's death sentence, along with that of dozens of other death row inmates in Texas, was commuted to life. It meant they would become eligible for parole someday. But who imagined that years later, any parole board member in their right mind would turn loose these killers? In the late 1980s, that's exactly what happened when the Texas Parole Board secretly released 83 former death row inmates and hundreds of the prison system's most violent criminals to relieve prison overcrowding. It silently occurred out of sight of the news media and public, relieving political pressure on Governor Bill Clements to raise taxes to build more prisons. 150 inmates a day poured out of state prisons into unsuspecting communities an orgy of senseless violence broke out. Newspaper headlines recounted how inmates out on early parole were causing murder and mayhem. Carjackers literally pulled a young lady by her hair from out of her car because they were running low on gas. They shot her in the head at a busy intersection and ran over her body for good measure as they sped away in her car. The tagline on all of these stories of murder and mayhem was that the perpetrator was out of prison on early parole. I started investigating how that could be happening. My first news report exposed that former death row inmates, including Leonardo Lopez and Kenneth McDuff had been paroled. My news report shocked and outraged law enforcement officers across the state. Their anger and public anger prompted a high-profile hearing by the Texas Senate's Criminal Justice Committee. Leonardo Lopez guarded most of the news media's attention. He and an accomplice had abducted five sheriff's deputies trying to serve arrest warrants in 1971. They executed three of the deputies on the banks of the Trinity River in downtown Dallas. It had set off the biggest manhunt since Bonnie and Clyde. The hearing set off a fiery confrontation between state-centered Ted Lyon and parole board members who voted to free Lopez. If you murder three police officers in Texas, all you're going to have to do is serve 16 years and you'll be out free. Why is that in the best interest of our society? Mr. Chairman, uh, personally I share the same sentiments you have. Well, you're the one that let him out you're the one that signed the release and i want to know why don't give me any bull about your sentiments i want to know why he's out why it's in the best interest of our society when a guy that kills three police officers and you're the person that did it now you tell me why it's in the best interest of our society little did anyone know in the hearing room that day with the exception of the parole board chairman that triple killer kenneth mcduff had been released under allegations of bribery In fact, he was stalking victims a few blocks away from the state capitol where the hearings were being conducted, and he would abduct a petite accountant from a nearby car wash.
1: Most all of his victims were, for whatever reason, brunette, and they were small females that he could easily manhandle. Some of them, he would be able to pick them up by the throat, get their feet off the ground where they couldn't fight him.
0: Back in August of 1966, then-19-year-old MacDuff and an accomplice abducted two teenage boys and a girl from a high school football field. McDuff tied up the boys, put them into the trunk of their car, and popped rounds from his 38 caliber revolver into both of them. Then, McDuff sadistically raped and assaulted the young woman for hours with a jagged, broken broomstick. Finally, he pressed the broomstick across her throat, strangling the helpless teen to death as his accomplice held down her flailing legs. McDuff, as he would brag to his accomplice and other accomplices in the future, had quote, used her up. U.S. Deputy Marshals Parnell McNamara and his brother Mike knew what McDuff was capable of better than any lawman in Texas. There are throwbacks to the old West. Parnell was the role model for Jeff Bridges' depiction of a Texas Ranger in the Oscar-nominated movie for best picture, Hell or High Water. The McNamara's family roots in Texas law enforcement stretch back to 1902. Their father, the legendary T.P. McNamara, ran the U.S. Marshal's office in Waco for 37 years. They followed in his footsteps. When the brothers were college students, They worked as federal guards helping their father arrest and transport federal fugitives back to prison. In a neighboring county, their childhood friend, Larry Pamplid, assisted his father, Brady, who was the sheriff of Falls County. It was home to Kenneth Allen McDuff and his ruthless mother known as the Pistol Packin' Mama. They had terrorized the small rural town of Rosebud for years. The Pamplins captured McDuff for the broomstick murders in 1966 after a car chase and rolling gun battle. Parnell McNamara vividly remembers that night.
1: He had a reputation as just being a, a low-life thug and a punk. Uh, <clears throat> so I remember Brady... Pamplin's hands shaking and his voice trembling when he was telling my father how Macduff had killed these three teenagers and especially the little girl and putting a broomstick across her throat after he had used it on her and brutally sexually assaulted her and had her down on her back in a gravel road. And I remember the sheriff shaking and saying, T.P., he broke her neck just like you would kill a possum, and I remember how sick I was, and my father, uh, you know, his reaction. Uh, I know that either one of those men would have killed McDuff at the drop of a hat, and so would I. You know, I, I was a guard. I didn't have a mm-hmm. badge. I didn't have credentials, but I had a gun, and you know, to hear something like that happen. In, in such a brutal way, it just made me sick, and I never forgot it.
0: In 1989, then Sheriff Larry Pampled, who had followed in his father's footsteps, heard that McDuff had been paroled. He made a prophetic prediction to his friend Marshal
2: Parnell McNamara. And I said, Mark my word. I said, I don't know if it'll be three days, three weeks, or three months, but I promise you, bodies are fixing to start showing up. And I think. It was three days later.
0: Two years after McDuff's highly unusual parole from prison, Pamplin's prediction came true. The McNamaras quickly organized a posse of lawmen and launched a nationwide manhunt for Kenneth McDuff. It would bring federal prosecutor Bill Johnston face to face with Texas'
2: worst ever serial killer. I was a couple of feet away from him for a pretty good while and I was speaking with him And his eyes were dead. Um, His eyes had no spark of life, had no um, humanity in them. There was something wrong with the guy. And I don't mean psychologically, I mean in his creation.
3: These are challenging times. And in difficult times, it can be difficult to cope. So if there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, and you've been thinking about talking to someone, it's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. BetterHelp is professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so that you can start communicating in under 48 hours. They have a broad range of expertise available and the service is available for clients worldwide. Just log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so that you don't ever have to sit in a waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free. To change your counselor if you need to. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Just visit their website and read the testimonials posted daily, like this one, written by a BetterHelp user after counseling for one month with Dr. Robert Nelson. Dr. Nelson has a very large breadth of knowledge concerning mental health. His expertise is diverse, and I am confident in his opinions regarding my mental health struggles. He is very honest and to the point with his responses, knowledgeable about medications, the spectrum of mental illness, and I look forward to working with him. Visit BetterHelp.com MurderMinute. That's B E T T E R H E L P, and join the over one million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all fifty states. Murder Minute listeners get ten percent off their first month when they visit BetterHelp.com/MurderMinute. That's BetterHelp.com/MurderMinute. Murder Minute. When it comes to shampoo and conditioner, there's no one-size-fits-all. We need products that are suited for our unique needs. And don't leave us disappointed. I have fine, color-treated hair, and a scalp that is somehow both oily and flaky. But now, thanks to my personalized Prose shampoo and conditioner... I've fallen in love with my hair again. Pros creates customized hair care products for people, not hair types. Pros has given over one million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is how I got started. Their quiz dives into every conceivable factor that affects your hair health, like your age, your diet, your styling habits, And even your environment so that they can best formulate your custom products to meet your unique needs with their algorithm and over 50 billion formula combinations pros determined a unique blend of ingredients to treat my exact concerns and every bottle is made to order guaranteeing optimal freshness Prose stands by clean and responsible beauty. Every formula is sustainably sourced and cruelty free. And Pros can accommodate virtually any preference, including vegan, gluten free, and more. If you're not 100% positive that Prose is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back. No questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it? Take your free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. Go to prose.com/murderminute. That's p-r-o-s-e.com/murderminute for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. That's prose.com/murderminute. With the holidays just around the corner, and with so many of us separated due to the pandemic, this year I'm looking for gifts that will help me stay connected with my loved ones throughout the season. That's why this year's perfect gift is a skylight frame. Skylight frame is a photo frame that you can update instantly by email from anywhere. It has a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen black frame and white matte so it looks just like a real photo frame and it sets up effortlessly in under 60 seconds even for my not so tech savvy family members just plug in use the touchscreen to connect to your wireless network and you'll be swiping through photos in no time everyone in the family can just email photos to your personal skylight email address and they'll pop up in seconds I won't be able to see my parents or my grandparents this year, but with a skylight frame on the mantle, we can still share in the holiday season. Multiple people can send photos to the frame, so it's a great way to enjoy the season together, even though we're apart. Skylight Frame has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love your skylight, then they'll offer you a full refund. Now, as a special offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter the code MINUTE. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter the code MINUTE. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com promo code MINUTE. These days, I'm eating at home for almost every meal. And I don't have a lot of time for grocery shopping, meal planning, or cooking. But I still want high-quality, sustainably-sourced, wholesome meals at home. That's why I decided to try Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable, with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. Their meal plans include paleo, plant-powered, keto, and balanced living. Green Chef's expert chefs design flavorful recipes, whatever your lifestyle, that go way beyond ordinary substitutions. With Green Chef, I can choose from a wide array of easy-to-follow meal plans with select organic ingredients and plenty of options every week delivered right to my door. Green Chef makes it easy for me to eat well and to discover new recipes every week that even I will love to cook. This saves me so much time while I'm working from home. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. Ingredients are seasonally sourced for peak freshness, come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped. So no matter what your cooking skill level, you'll get perfect results. Green Chef makes cooking easy, with dinner options that work around your lifestyle, not the other way around. Plus, Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box, so that I can feel great about what I'm eating and how it got to my table. Let Green Chef do the meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep for you, week after week. Use code MURDERMINUTE80 to get $80 off your first month, plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com MURDERMINUTE80 to redeem and for more details. That's greenchef.com MURDERMINUTE80.
0: Well, the last uh, soundbite you heard was from former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston describing uh, Kenneth Allen McDuff as a you know something wrong with his creation. Well, Bill joins me now, and Bill, explain more what what was it that made this guy tick, and and what was it like sitting in that room with him? And then you were later on a U.S. Marshal Service jet bringing him back to Texas after he was caught.
2: Well, I was I was with. Macduff, I don't know, four or five different occasions where I was close to him. And the first couple of times I was, what's a good way to put it? I was uh, sort of at a, even though it was close, I was at a distance in my mind. In other words, I was thinking about the things he had done. And I was uh, trying to just watch his uh, reactions, his eyes and so forth on the jet coming back, particularly when we came back from Kansas City with him. I was probably eight feet away from him. So, you know, I, I just saw him on that occasion more as a, this, this monster that had been shackled and, and brought aboard a plane. Later, uh, both in the courtroom, on one, one occasion, he, we maybe looked at each other briefly but it wasn't until I was with him for a prolonged period of time on death row or on the, um, the holding facility near death row that <clears throat> that I engaged with him in a meaningful way. By that, I mean I really need to know something, and he told me something, and so it was back and forth. And I was embarrassed that I was talking to him. I felt like I was honoring his existence, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I didn't like that very well. You know, I never
0: asked for a prison interview with him because of that very thing. It just bothered me. Now, my contact with him was in and out of the uh, courthouse in uh, Houston when he was on trial for the murder of Melissa Northrup. And I do remember after he was found guilty and sentenced to die by lethal injection, he was coming out and I looked at him and I said, well, Kenneth, what now? And he is those Black, piercing eyes just suddenly just turned into mine, and he and he smiled the sarcastic grin and
2: said, uh, "Well, I guess I'm going to die." Hmm. Yeah, i I remember down there. Uh, I thought that was a really big deal in Houston because I thought that was the first that was the the accountability everybody wanted. Yes, and it was almost like. A couple of times he knew he was in a cage. In other words, he had a he had a couple of little outbursts. Uh, one was physical, I think, and one was just uh, vocal. But like he recognized, almost like an animal does, that he's in a trap and he's not likely to get out of the trap. Uh, but I yeah I remember that in Houston.
0: So you know he always put his victims in the trap and he was always in control. And it struck me it was all about control with him, even how he would say at the end of murdering a woman that he had used her up.
2: I think that's right. I think he, he wanted to be in complete control almost in his whole life. He was in control except for when he was in prison, and then he adapted to prison to become in control again. You know, he was, uh, I think they called it a building tender. Uh, something like that, he was allowed to be um, almost like in a gang. He's almost uh, put in a position of a vigilante boss uh, of of his wing. And they probably did that because uh, they knew he, when put in a position of power, controlled people. Well, that goes back to the old days
0: of the Texas prison system in which literally The inmates even ran security, and the meanest, toughest inmates were picked as building tenders to supervise an entire wing of inmates. And, uh, oh, they were known for their brutality, and uh, and they would have a lackey working for them called a key because they would turn the key in the cell doors for the building tenders. But I, I ran into an inmate during my investigation. He had a big scar across his face where he had been, quote, Keyed by a building tender, struck mm. across the face, and back in those days, you had these huge maximum security prisons that at night had five guards on wow. duty. How frightening! Yeah, because the inmates were running it, and, and that's what got Texas in so much trouble as well, because of just the brutality it was taking place. You
2: know, we found a guy during the McDuff manhunt, Billy Earl Smith, and Billy Earl. Uh, may have been that person that you're referring to. He was uh, sort of a stooge for McDuff, and he kept uh, McDuff's heroin in a balloon tucked away. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, well, can, I will say it. One in, can imagine. In his anus. Yes. That's the way they do it in <laughs> That's Britain. the way they do it. Yes. And so Billy Earl um, was uh, a bit of a, stooge or uh, lackey for Macduff and uh, Macduff relied on it. Billy Earl was big too. And he was mean, uh, but he Macduff relied upon him to hide his dope. And I think to help him jump people. Yeah, Mac, yeah. And that, you know, they used to say when looking at someone, whether or not to give them the death penalty, are they dangerous even in prison? That was one of the considerations and it still is to some degree, but Macduff was truly dangerous even in prison.
0: Well, you know, one sign that told me just how dangerous he was is then uh, that in a system where your survival depends on gangs and gang membership, now he leaned toward the Aryan Brotherhood, but he didn't have a single gang tattoo. He was a guy that, you know, apparently there was such a perception about him being
2: mean and tough, he could walk his own way. I think so. And again, comparing him to the animal kingdom, um, maybe an alpha wolf, something mm-hmm. like that. He wasn't social except to control the social. Yes, he didn't. Uh, he didn't seem to make friends of any sort, and I don't think he knew what that meant. I, I again, I think he la- completely lacked the spark of empathy uh, or uh, compassion. I mean, there was none of it in him. And so I think he was just uh, would control like an animal controlled. I interviewed one of his cellmates
0: who said that he at, at times, you know, was a bit seemed a bit goofy, but there was no personal connection. But he was so big, and the other thing they feared about him, besides his size, was he had been on death row. That was a a big badge of honor among inmates. He'd been on death row. But what he did tell me is that without any warning, something, a, a, a switch would flip and it would set him off and it would scare everyone around him. Like, man, who is this guy going to
2: kill one of us right here in prison? That's right. You know, um, he was so big. In fact, in the, I think I told you I had a nightmare
3: <laughs> yes. a few
2: months ago. I, I haven't told that to anybody, but you. But I had a nightmare about him, and he was so quick. He got control of the, as I recall, it was a firearm in the room during my nightmare. <clears throat> and he got control of it in a flash. But you talk about the death row guys, you know, there were, when Furman versus Georgia came out, I think in 73, United States Supreme 72. Court. 72. 72. Yeah. United States Supreme Court essentially threw out the death penalties because of the way they were being. Uh, implemented and the jury questions and so forth, there were not all that many, but there were several that were put back into population. Uh, I prosecuted another one uh, of them, uh, a guy that was not near as bad as Macduff, but he was a killer. But I think the other inmates saw them like you would see someone walking out of hell. In other words, these people had been to hell. They'd lived in hell. They were part of hell. And then somehow this iron door Cracked open and they crawled out of hell, so they were afraid of him.
0: Well, this story uh, affected me like n- none in my career, maybe except covering wars, and that was the hell that he took his victims into. That I can its just unimaginable what we learned about him. And I guess it is unique in that we had witnesses to his his evil deeds, and that he ha- he liked to have an accomplice. I believe he liked his accomplices because he needed. It was like performance art for him.
2: But what these young women went to before they met God. Well, you know, that's the, um, I had a very strange, active career as a federal prosecutor. Um, And of all the cases that trouble me, um, the McDuff... Case the facts, particularly regarding Colleen Reed, and maybe because I heard them pretty quickly after they were told by the accomplice. that was there when he was talking, um, and it was uh, it was so real. I wasn't picturing have happened you know, having happened a long time ago, I pictured it as just happening, really. And um, the terror of someone that's caught, that can't get out, that can feel, that can um, perceive their own end um, and almost wants it to happen because it's so terrible getting there. And uh, that troubled me. It still does. And driving... Uh, there's a back way to get to Austin from Waco. I would take that back way often because of traffic on the interstate and uh, and I would go by where he told where his accomplice told us yeah. a lot of that torture took place. and uh, man, I just can, couldn't get it out of my mind. And you know
0: it struck me that he was not going to let them die until it was on his terms until he decided it was time. And then it, would, it was time, as he would say, to
2: use them up. Yeah, you know, a part of the control. Yes. And and in some way that none of us hopefully really fully understand because it's, it's too sick. But in some way, he was getting you know, gratification all the time from their terror. And so I guess in his mind, he had a time frame for that, whether mm-hmm. it was 15 minutes or three hours. And that was again he controlled that well you know what he did is
0: unthinkable and uh, most of the public uh, has they have no idea what kind of evil is out there lurking you and i have seen it our entire careers but most people are, v- are rather naive about it at all what should <laughs> what should someone learn from this about being aware of their surroundings and where they go and
2: hmm. well I just hate that it's true. I hate that really the the deal is that one in, I don't know, 100,000, yeah. 10 million, I don't know, uh, people are um, something like McDuff. Uh, now, there is a gradation, obviously, there's a many mean people, and many people hurt one another and do all the time, and it doesn't take a serial killer to get you in a real mess as a citizen out there. Um, So people should be aware. And, gosh, you don't want people to live their lives in fear either. Um, But the truth is that out there in the world, um, maybe not in every state, but certainly in every region of the country, there's a serial killer of this nature or something close to it. And um, they're out there waiting uh, to do bad things to people. And people that think that everyone's generally good, that's okay. Uh, But they need to also, I, I would hope people also recognize that there are some people that are not just generally bad. There are some people that are so bad that they must be avoided at all costs. And if they have done something like this and they have been captured, there's nothing you can do with them. You can't help them. You can't fix them. You can't make anyone safe around them. And sadly, uh, the only thing you can do with this rare person is kill them because they'll kill and torture and maim. That's all they do. And
0: neither one of us are really big fans of the death penalty. As odd as that may sound to you people know, a prosecutor
2: and isn't that and funny
0: report what all we've seen.
2: Isn't that funny? You know, I I uh, was naive about it when I was a young prosecutor and I didn't handle death penalty cases right at first. I handled some murder cases when I was twenty three. But as I as I watched the system, I recognized that the death penalty is not for every killer. And there are times when someone's young or someone's on drugs or someone. There's all kinds of Mm -hmm. reasons people kill people and they may not need to be killed over it. It's the McDuff case set in my mind that there are those cases where all the system would say, oh, they won't get out. He'll get a life sentence. Well, McDuff got a life sentence. Got, I think, three life sentences. Yes. And he got out. So the life sentence wasn't the medicine for him. And that's so rare, but it still can happen. You see change in our system and you see um, this uh, sort of backwards looking uh, redo of a lot of laws. So there are people, there may be serial killers right now that have life sentences that may well get out with a change in the law and a change in a system. So there are. Yeah. There are those rare folks that that's all you can do. Well, and of course, this was three decades ago. And if you look back at
0: what you brought him to justice, I exposed the allegations of corruption in the prison and the parole system, which shocked everybody. Then you convened a federal grand jury to pursue it. And he became the poster boy for criminal justice reform in, t- in terms of tougher sentences, prison building in the state. But you see what's going on around the day. You think, you know, we've lost sight of the historical lessons of that. And, and that, I'm, what I'm talking about is this sort of liberalized bail where, really, where you are really letting violent, violent offenders are accused. I don't know, easy bail, and, you know, they're reoffending. You can go talk to the police in Houston and see, hear case after case.
2: You know, there are reasons to have bail reform in that, uh, and— everyone may not agree with me, it doesn't matter, but in that some uh, offenders, some people that commit crimes are being held, on, not because they're terribly dangerous or anything. They're being held because they don't have the financial means to make bond. And that's not fair. So no. there's a, there's a due process and equal protection sifting of that. And, you know, the federal bail reform act was seen as very harsh. It came out like in the late eighties and, and, Many people thought, "Oh, this is so terrible! You're you're presumptively holding people without bond on serious on, on violent crimes or ser- very serious drug cases." But what that also did was, in the federal system, the I'll just say the average offender. I don't know how else to say it. They were able to, in most jurisdictions, just do a signature bond. So in federal court, um, the Bail Reform Act it did keep a lot of people in jail, and. Would say they needed to be in jail until their case was heard. Now, federally, there are speedy trial acts. Quick, it works. A federal jury trial is set about 75 or 80 days after the person is indicted. So it's, they're not languishing in trial and in, in the uh, pretrial confinement like in the state systems all over the country. But uh, the other part of the Bail Reform Act was that many people with no money being posted, just a signature, and they were supervised got out of jail, and waited for their trial. So there's a balance of things, but you're right. Yeah, people, and the way people think, uh, not just a McDuff, but someone that's uh, sort of a career offender, that's what they do for a living is commit crime, particularly violent crime, those folks respond uh, to how they're handled early on. And if someone is released... Let's say within five or ten hours of being arrested for something really bad, that is encouragement to them that doing this uh, not just not that it pays off, but there is no no negative consequence. And I don't mean to say like you know we're uh, mice in a cage being punished or treated, but people do uh, respond to you know uh, ramifications. Well, three
0: decades ago, we crossed paths with McDuff, then later Branch Davidians. You prosecuted the cult uh, for the killing of the federal agents in Waco and crossed paths in your federal prosecutor work. And so now here we are back again with True Crime Reporter. And now we're joining forces to do a podcast called Justice Facts or the play on words, Just the Facts, which there seems to be a short supply today. But... Give the listeners a preview of of what they can expect here, because we're going to kind of talk weekly about the big trending criminal case, like a Jeffrey Epstein and his alleged uh, co-conspirator, or procurer of women,
2: uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Yes, I think it's an opportunity for us to use our experience to talk about these things. You know, uh, people who give opinions, and it's given 30 seconds on every channel, but give a, who give opinions about current events and crime, they often have opinions. I think the question is how well-founded are their opinions? In other words, do they have the experience and the intellect to, to uh, give such an opinion? I can't guarantee you on the intellect department, but I can tell you that you and I combined have, I don't know, gosh, 60 or 70 years yes. experience, yeah. something like that. And so it gives us a foundation to say, here's what this means. For instance, in the case of uh, sexual assault, particularly involving an allegation of pedophilia, uh, there are certain hallmarks of that lifestyle and that crime. I've unfortunately dealt with a number uh, in federal cases and some state cases. And we can use our experience to say, here's what this means. Here's what's probably going to happen. Here's what might happen. And uh, hopefully give people a an idea behind the curtain uh, of what a certain process that's unfolding yeah. means and what it may where the where the result may come
0: and you know prior to journalism i was an investigator for a congressional committee a defense committee and we were investigating fallout from the watergate hearings mm. and so i've been deep into political corruption as a congressional investigator and then you know the 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 tradecraft I learned in that time, and especially with national security, I applied as a reporter. And, you know, there were members of the uh, Dallas City Council, and a high profile state rep went to federal prison behind my reporting. So we, we can, I think we're going to bring a wide perspective that's unique that most
2: people don't get. I think um, my childhood affected all this. And I, by that, I mean. Uh, what we see when we're young gives us experience and can give us perspective. I grew up in a, in a Dallas, the son of a prosecutor in Dallas, and he wasn't a famous prosecutor and he wasn't a, a glory seeking prosecutor. He was a hard working guy. And, uh, because my mom died when I was a little boy, I just deified and adored my father and my father, uh, Prosecuted in in the Dallas DA's office back when that was a a well known place. And it was well known because of the Jack Ruby case, the assassination of President Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, and those matters, uh, Roe versus Wade. All of these things came from Dallas. Uh, My father did the briefing for the Jack Ruby, State of Texas versus Jack Ruby case. And because of that, because he was involved for the district attorney's office on that and other related matters, we would have the strangest calls at my house. Uh, when I was seven or eight, uh, I remember get, we got a call at the house. And, of course, our number was in the phone book back when they had phone uh-huh. and numbers and, <laughs> and wall phones. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, but it, I would get a call periodically at the house that I would answer. And it was a woman with an accent and she wanted to speak to my father, and I would let the phone hang, run to the other room, and get my father. And after a couple of those, I asked him who was that. And he said, "Well, that was Mrs. Oswald." And I, "Who?" And he said, "Well, that was Marina Oswald. That's Lee Harvey's wife. She's worried that um, we're going to order his body exhumed, or he would probably say dig up. Yeah, sure, <laughs> dug him. Up. We're yeah. going to. I think he said <laughs> she's worried we're going to dig him up. And I, oh gosh." But those sort of things went on around my house, uh, and my father was close friends with a lot of folks in law enforcement uh, from the old, I mean, really old days. Uh, When I answered the door one time at our home, this great big guy with a cowboy hat on was there and wanted to speak to my father, and, and they went in the front room, as they say front room back then, the couches where people, adults would talk and kids would
0: Mm -hmm, try mm -hmm. to hear what
2: they were talking about. Oh yeah. And so this fellow talked to my dad for a while and he left and I said, who was that? it's Ted Hendrickson. He wants to run for sheriff in Dallas. He wants my support. Oh, okay. He said, he's one of the men that killed Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. And I, I knew what that was. The movie was out about that time. And uh, I said, oh, that's, yeah, he. He was one of the ones that killed yeah. him. So when you're a kid and experience that, you're interested in it maybe, but it also you're not. Uh, I wasn't afraid of the size of these things, or uh, the uh, big nature or the complex nature of something, or the or the uh, what's a good word? Fantastic yes. nature of some of these cases. So,
0: well, similar. I you know grew up the son of a small businessman in East Texas, but uh, the most important thing is. The son of a veteran and uncles who were veterans, of World War II. and boy, that's a whole different deal. There wasn't really time for debate of issues in our house, but um, and I'm named after an uncle that I followed to Texas A&M. He'd gone there, got called to the war his junior year, and was highly decorated. And so you did kind of you had something to live up to. Uh, your word was your bond. The, and my dad was involved in a local law enforcement. Although he's a small businessman, uh, he went down to plead the case for a pay raise for the police officers and uh, met resistance. So they made him police commissioner. And little did they know, he was close with the governor and he got the governor to change the sales tax. So some of the sales tax in our community went to a pay raise for the officers and as a result of that, you know, I could come in from a, in high school from a date on Friday night, and sitting at the dining room table drinking coffee would always be a group of Texas Rangers and Texas Highway Patrolmen, uh, FBI agents, uh, and you know, I'm like you, know, get in that other room and kind of listen and the stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you really kind of came away with understanding what made them tick and appreciation for what they do, and and uh, I have to say that. The ones that I saw that were very professional and high standards and, uh, I mean, they'd be appalled at some of the scandal,
2: things we've seen happen these days. That's right. You know, the uh, the type of folks in law enforcement back in those, day, those days, and I know that, uh, you know, it's uh, we're in a different time, Yeah. but so many were veterans. You know, I was lucky. When I started prosecuting federally, I was 10 to 15 years younger than everybody I worked with. I was in my 20s, Mm -hmm. and most of my agents that I worked with closely were Vietnam veterans, and it gave them an objectivity about things, what was really important, how to treat people. And we had uh, very few issues uh, in my cases with the way a person was handled or treated. Sure.
0: Well, that gives our listeners a a taste of what you can expect, uh, both in True Crime Reporter the Free to Kill series about the serial killer, Kenneth Allen McDuff, and Justice Facts. So you want to listen to more of Bill and I, uh, we hope you'll go to your favorite podcast app and download those those episodes, True Crime Reporter and Justice Facts. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. You bet. You can listen to the True Crime Reporter's full 15-episode season about serial killer Kenneth McDuff by subscribing to True Crime Reporter on your favorite podcast app. And you can join our true crime fandom for additional information by texting true crime to three, three, seven, seven, seven. That's two words, true crime to three, three, seven, seven, seven. And you can also hear Bill and I discuss the sensational crime cases, making news today by subscribing to our podcast, justice facts on your favorite podcast app. We take you behind the scenes into the dark drama surrounding these cases and from a perspective that you would never experience on your own. That's Justice Facts. Join us for our journey into darkness. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news show. It is an original co-production with podcast ad reps. Hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs. Executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold. Audio production by Matt Stoker. Original music by Blair King. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Photography, Igor Kurgulats. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Special thanks to Gary Laverne, author of Bad Boy from Rosebud, The Murderous Life of Kenneth Allen McDuff. The audio recordings of the Senate Criminal Justice Committee hearings are courtesy of the Texas State Archives. Archive sound bites included in the episodes are from my original Reporter's Notebook tape recordings. And for our listeners who stayed to hear the credits, here's a little bonus.